right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in a unity that you've provided, Father, for each one of us as individuals as well as corporately by means of a faith through grace that you've provided as well, all motivated, of course, by your unending, unerring love for your children. Father, what a blessing this morning is just to be here at North Christian Church to celebrate your Son, our Lord and Savior, and His Gospel, His precious Gospel. The reason why you leave us here after salvation, Father, is to spread the good news. For this we are humbled. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning, that earnestly desire to be here members of this congregation of yours. But we pray most of all for those still lost in this world, that we might give them the gospel, that they might be saved, so we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a time to celebrate that will be. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, and to make a morning like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 13. A fantastic series that we've been on. Uh, a lot of different uh, angles to it. Two primary ones. We started out looking at the individual reasons for undistracted devotion, but as we'll see this morning, uh, we sort of turned the corner and looked at this situation uh, as a corporate body as well. But before we get to that, a couple of weeks ago, uh, again, the Spirit has turned our attention um, from what, what is undistracted devotion by definition. We spent the first part of this series on getting a good definition from Holy Scripture. And that's what we typically do whenever we embark on a particular doctrine, a particular concept from uh, God, we want a good definition, a working definition. And so we spent the better half, uh, the better part of the first half of the series on what is undistracted devotion, what does it look like, etc. Uh, and now we've sort of embarked on a different question, why? Why it might even exist in the first place? Why might we be motivated to be devoted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the way the Bible says we ought to be. Um, so we've gone from what to why. Up here on the board, this is a good place to start. The Amplified Classic has it this way, Romans 5, 8. But God shows and clearly proves His own love for us by the fact that while we were sinners... Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for us. Again, God shows and clearly proves His own love for us. It's a wonderful place to start um, on this topic of why we might have undistracted devotion to the Lord. It almost is reciprocal. In 1 John it says, we love because He first loved us. And just having proof that He loves us, as we just read, 
uh, is ample cause, if you would, to get started on the why question. Why undistracted devotion? So whenever we read verses like this, we ought to be filled with gratitude, frankly, with love. You mean he loved me that much? Yeah. That while I was a sinner, no righteous deed in me whatsoever, no possible way to save myself, he, he became a man and died for me? Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm filled with gratitude and with love. And that's exactly what he wants. Precisely what he wants. He, wants, he has invited us into the sphere of his love. And we're going to talk about spheres again this morning. He's invited us into the sphere of his love. Jesus Christ described it as abide in me. Abide in my love. Amen? Right, that's the invitation. And that's the gospel, true. That's the gospel. So whenever we read verses like this, we ought to be filled with gratitude and with love. But sometimes we aren't filled this way, if we're honest. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're in a mood. Sometimes we're having a bad day. Maybe we're at odds with the holy God of the universe, if we're honest. So sometimes we aren't filled this way, which is why we have messages like these. Whole series dedicated to discovering what God wants us to know about devotion to the Lord. On Thursday, we began with a battery of questions up here on the board. What about this love? What about abiding in this love? And these are questions that really get us situated on a morning like this. Is my life consistent, or is my life consistent with God's love? I should say with God's love. Is my life consistent with God's love? Am I willing to lay down my life for others? Not because I am emotionally attached to them, but rather for our Father's sake in heaven, the way Christ did. And then, of course, is my heart right before God? We're going to consider the sphere of God's love, godly love. These are the questions we have to ask ourselves in a very practical way. It's not enough just to give this lip service. Of course, I love Jesus. I love God. I love everybody, you know, let's sing Kumbaya. But is your life consistent with godly love? Are you laying down your life for others? Not because you love them emotionally, not because you have a personal love, but the way Christ did. How's your heart before God? It's usually at this point that some of you will begin grumbling in your soul. Maybe there's a little agitation there. Maybe you realize that you kind of fail the test a little bit. Some of these questions come up vapid, empty. So some of you might start grumbling. Why? Maybe because your deeds fall short, maybe well short, of where you know they ought to be, especially by now in your spiritual walk. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know. Maybe that's why. For example... If you've been at this for years, and I know I speak for, I'll 
looking around, probably the majority of you, decades. You've been at this for decades. And you look back and you're just as self-absorbed and or egocentric as you were the day after you were saved, then something might be retarding your spiritual growth, holding you back. And it's usually this same person that has knee-jerk reactions to convicting messages like those of late. Those are the people that murmur in their soul because they're stuck. And it's the same person that's stuck that murmurs. But let me ask you this question up here on the board, and we talked about this on Thursday, putting God's love on trial. How many times have you said, have you said? I'm having English problems up here, isn't it? Are you reading that? You know what's funny, too? That first have I put in there right before class. How many times have you said to God, show me that you love me? You know you've all done it. Whether silently in your own soul, through prayer. Um, we've all done it. Show me that you love me, God. I'm having a tough time. I need to know that you love me. How many times have you said that? Countless, right? How many times have you demanded, quote unquote, that God reveal his love to you? And how many times have you used the evidence of his love for you as proof that his love for you even exists? We do it all the time. I hear people, they write to me, they talk to me, they say, you probably have this in your own lives, God graced me out today. God, he loves me. He graced me out. I had this prayer and he delivered. I was stuck. He delivered me out of that situation, whatever it might have been. And you call upon that evidence as proof that he loves you. Fair enough? Yeah. And rightly so. He wants you to do that thing. Yet, oddly enough, we're somehow affronted when challenged regarding our own love and its deeds. We have no problem putting God on trial. Hey! But then he turns the table and says, well, I want you to be the same. Oh, wait a minute. Now, in terms of love's deeds, Jesus said, not Pastor Ed Collins, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. If you love me, you say you do, but if you do, if you really love me, you will keep my commandments. Go to John 14, 21. John 14, verse 21. John 14, verse 21. Speaking of deeds, speaking of expressing love, true love, this is what Jesus had to say about it. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, operative word, keeps them, is the one who loves me. In other words, there's a lot of riffraff out there. They call themselves Christian. But we've been down this road how many times now over the past few years? There's a lot of Christians that aren't, I would argue, aren't even saved. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. As we've learned in the past, verse 21 takes our thoughts to the sphere of love. In other words, again, that's that invitation. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And so we're talking about being in the sphere of God's love. So our thoughts get taken to the sphere of love. That love isn't merely a list of to-dos, but rather the embodiment of the holy God of the universe's essence. What is the sphere of love? It's the essence of God. Because as the Bible says, God is love. And even his own activities are manifestations of love. But we don't define love by activities. Love is. And as I wrote that um, sentence, the embodiment of the holy God of the universe, it reminded me of this last week's blog. Did you know I wrote a blog? Some of you are like, (laughs) I don't even find that funny anymore. Those are the people who don't read it. <laughs> Next time I say that, everybody's going to be like, ha, 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 ha. Well, anyways, the blog was titled God's Morality in the Law, where it uses the same language to describe the law of God as follows up here on the board. God's Morality in the Law. Romans 2.20, Part B says, Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge, and of truth. You should read that blog, because it clears a few things up. I think a lot of people are confused about what the law even is, and what they focus on when it comes to the law. The fact is that the law is a perfect reflection of God's holy character. Perfect reflection of God's holy character character. And you know what? So is his love. So on one hand, you have the law. On the other hand, you have love. And they're both reflections of his holy character, his essence, if you will. And when you have two things that are intrinsically joined like this, we can rightly conclude that they are one and the same. And in this case, what we're concluding is that the sphere of love is the same sphere that contains God's law. In other words, God gives us the law out of love. The law is the very expression of the holy character of God, which is love, because God is love. I think we muck that up sometimes. I think we look at the law as one thing and and love as another. And then some other aspect or facet of God's essence as yet another. Just because they're distinguishable doesn't mean it's... They're in different spheres. They're all intrinsic to one another. Let me help here, up here on the board. The sphere of God... Love and the law of God coexist in the same sphere, namely God's essence. These are inseparable qualities, among others. 
justice, righteousness, integrity, etc. These are inseparable qualities that, though distinguishable individually, nonetheless always function in perfect synchronicity, harmony, and immutability. It means they never change. Again, this is the sphere of God. Love and the law of God, for example, coexist in the same sphere, namely God's essence. These are inseparable qualities that, though distinguishable individually, nonetheless always function in perfect synchronicity, harmony, and immutability. And you know what? In a way, I just described heaven. I just described heaven where we're going to be in the very presence of God, in the sphere of God, completely enveloped. Oh, I can't, I got goosebumps. Completely enveloped in love. And justice and righteousness and everything else you want to attribute to the essence of God. If for a moment we consider heaven the ultimate direction for our sanctification. That's not a bad definition, by the way. If we consider heaven the ultimate direction for our sanctification, I'm not talking about the, the destination. I'm talking about what it represents, being in the presence of God, holy, sanctified, ultimate sanctification in view, of course. If we consider heaven the ultimate direction for our sanctification, then when we consider the point on the board... What we have is a slice of heaven on earth. Assuming we are sanctified to the degree, of course, experientially, that we are able to abide in such truths. In other words, if that point on the board makes sense to you, then to whatever degree it resonates in your own soul, you have a slice of heaven on earth. This is what it means to be sanctified. So let's take this moment to interject Jesus' words from John 14, 21 again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So wait a minute. So we have the law and we have love. And the one who keeps the law, so to speak, is also in the sphere of love? Yes. Because they're one and the same thing, you see. The one who loves habitually wants to keep God's law. The one who habitually keeps God's law is the one who loves. So said Jesus. So what we shouldn't miss here is that heaven, our ultimate sanctification, is where we will implicitly obey God. Let me say that again. Heaven, our ultimate, let's call it our ultimate place of sanctification, is where we will implicitly obey God. See, down here we have a free will that, that works with and is tempted by our own sinful flesh. And so it's not implied <laughs> that we're going to obey, obey God, right? But in heaven, there's no more flesh. There's no more enemies. There's no more. The very presence of sin has been put away. So obedience is implied. 
that's going to be a blast. Because I'm sick of this, you know, like Paul, who's going to free me from this wretched body of death? I'm sick of this thing. This thing tortures me day and night. Seems like the older I get, the worse and the, the, the greater the number of lusts even. It's like, what, where's that even coming from? Why am I lusting after chocolate cake? I'm just being wise, trying to loosen you up. You look kind of serious. Why am I lusting after this thing? Why, am I, why do I want that thing all of a sudden? You know why? Because anything to take me away from my first love. Maybe I've conquered these other lusts, and the kingdom of darkness knows it, so it ushers in other kinds of temptations. That my flesh is like, giddy up, let's do this thing. But in heaven, implicit obedience. No temptation. It may not even feel like obedience because we will be completely restored and rid of sin forever. In other words, there'll be no more tension to speak of. But nonetheless, we will be perfectly obedient to God. This is what it means to be in the sphere of His essence. Remember, obedience is nothing more than functioning in agreement with authority. And we will do that perfectly in heaven. And the result? Perfect peace. Perfect peace. You know why you don't have peace, even now. Because your sinful flesh is antagonizing you. Some of you are sitting in your seat right now, and it's antagonizing you. Right? Whatever it is. I don't know. You dragged it off the street and brought it with you. Heaven? Perfect peace. In other words, perfect obedience means perfect peace. Let me say it again. Ultimate sanctification, perfect obedience, perfect peace. You see a little thing we might be able to cling to even today? Perfect obedience, perfect peace. So feel free to apply what you, feel free to apply that to your own life and time, even today. Again, what is verse 21, part A? You're still in John 14, right? What's part A say? It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Up here on the board. So you want to abide in the sphere of love? Do you want to? Really, who doesn't, right? Because when you abide in the sphere of love, you have peace. What is Jesus suggesting then? Obedience. Perfect obedience. Perfect peace. Look at our ultimate sanctification in heaven. Perfect obedience. Perfect peace. Sphere of love. That's what sanctification looks like. Keeps, tereo in the Greek, up here on the board, to keep, guard, observe, watch over, that's from Strong's, is in the present tense active voice, which means that it is something a person does habitually. Doesn't mean perfectly, it means habitually. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The original Greek tells us a lot about believers 
Moving from the gospel according to John to his first epistle, go to 1 John 2, verse 4. 1 John 2, verse 4. This is all review, of course. First John 2, verse 4. It's one of the reasons we do go to the original language on occasion, just to get clarity. First John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, John's saying, basically, if your lifestyle, if your habit is to ignore everything I've ever said, you're a lie. You're not even saved. You have no desire. And the evidence is your life. We've been over that a thousand times, if not once, over the past three, four years. But verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, now we're into the realm of believers, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Up here on the board, been perfected from tele-o-o, from strongs as a course, a race, or the like, I complete, finish, be as of time, a prediction, I accomplish, and see, I make perfect, passive, I am perfected. That's what tele-o-o, excuse me, actually means, has been perfected. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Make sure you have the proper perspective when you read this also. I'll borrow from McDonald on this again. The love of God here, in verse 5, does not refer to our love for God, but rather to his love for us. The thought is that God's love toward us has been brought to its goal when we keep his word. That's the attractiveness, if you would, of his love. That's what he wants for us, for his children. Isn't that, if you're a parent, isn't that what you want? You tell your child, hey, listen, not a good idea to go drink booze. Really bad idea to go drink booze at a high school party and then jump in a car. Don't you, as a parent, want that kid to obey? Why? So they don't hurt themselves. Why? Because you love them. That's your Father in Heaven. He doesn't want us destroying ourselves. He said, I gave you these commandments for a reason. Because I love you. That was the blog. Because I love you. And I don't want you to hurt yourself. I'm not some oppressive God. You know, that's that adolescent. You don't understand my life. All you want to do is give me rules. No. And everybody in here who's ever been a child has ever thought like that. When they grow up, they thank their parents if they're not too arrogant. And they say, thank you for the guidelines. And then if it still doesn't happen, you know, you know what happens, right? It happens when you have kids. Then you have kids and you're like, oh my word, I cannot believe my parents went through this. Now I get it. Tell my kid one thing, I love them, don't stick your finger in the light socket, it's going to hurt. What do they do? <laughs> Mom, I told you, I tell you, that's the law. It's not because I don't like you, it's not because I'm trying to press you, I'm actually trying to preserve you from yourself. And in a perfect way, that's what our Father does for us. And you start realizing that when you mature. And you realize that it's the sphere of love that counts. 
when you start orienting to his love, we love because he first loved us, you start realizing, you start embracing commandments. Because now it takes all the guesswork out. Instead of being like an adolescent jackass, you grow up and say, wait a minute, these rules, these commandments are good for me. From a Father in Heaven who loves me. Who, by the way, when I'm ultimately sanctified, all I'm going to really ever want to do implicitly is obey Him anyways. The thought is that God's love toward us has been brought to its goal when we keep His Word. It accomplishes its aim and reaches its end in in producing obedience to Him. Obedience. See, obedience is a dirty word. It's almost like a swear word nowadays, especially in our country where everybody's taught to be anti-authority. But in heaven, it's perfect. It actually is how we're delivered even in time. It's how we get a slice of heaven. It's how you get peace when you go home today. It's not by being a rebel. It's not by trying to be James, the next James Dean. Who did rebel without a cause? Oh, see that? Just saying. He was before my time even. Just saying. I lost my train of thought because I was being arrogant. See? <laughs> That's how it goes. I'm disobeying. See, you just saw live action. <laughs> Obedience has an end result. It's called peace. You're going to go home today if you obey, if you abide in the sphere of his love. You will have peace. That is a promise from God's Word. Be a rebel. Disobey. Pick and choose the commands you like. That whole lifestyle game. Mm -mm. Peace is fleeting. Now, before we let ourselves become overwhelmed, some of you are saying, oh man, I'm just a train wreck. My lifestyle is so much momentum going in this lifestyle. Blah, blah, blah. Balance statement. Sanctification takes time. Therefore, to our series title, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, this too takes time. Some of you are saying, I, my, my devotion to the Lord really stinks, honestly. And that's a conversation you don't have to have with anybody else. You have it with God in prayer. And do as the disciples did, increase my faith. Sanctification takes time. Undistracted devotion as an element of sanctification takes time. So, up here on the board, while the direction has been set in our new creature at salvation, the perfection remains outstanding as the end goal, a.k.a. ultimate sanctification, that which I just described as what we're going to experience in heaven. So, the reason for that little balance statement is simple, and this should be encouraging. None of us are perfect. Our faith isn't. Our love isn't, our deeds aren't. So you've got to relax. You can't put yourself back into bondage, Galatians 5.1. So freedom that we have set free. Not put yourself back into bondage. This time, under the uh, precepts of religion. Well, now I've got to do this list. There's all these commandments. Boom, 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 boom. No, 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 no. What's the overarching law? Love. Work on understanding what love is.
So let's keep our perspective godly on this topic of sanctification takes time. Up here on the board. God sanctifies our hearts. Fruit is the evidence of His love abiding in us. Increasing evidence means increased sanctification. In other words, we keep His word, as we saw in 1 John 2, 4-5. As a practical note on sanctification as well, up here on the board, if truth ever puts us back into bondage, it's not truth's fault, it's our own. The truth is making us free. That's what it is by design. Truth sets us free by God's design. 1 John 3, 24 Galatians 5, 1, etc., etc. Maybe this point is best encapsulated in 1 John 5, 3. I'll give you the Amplified Classic up here. 1 John 5, 3. For the true love of God is this, that we do His commands, keep His ordinances, and are mindful of His precepts and teaching. And these orders of His are not irksome, burdensome, oppressive, or grievous. That's the true love of God, is this, that we do His commands. In other words, the sphere of God. This is what the sphere of God looks like. This is how we even behave within the sphere of God. Why? Because we're motivated out of love. And even understanding. I mean, isn't that what we're doing here? We're learning the why. Why would I ever be motivated to be devoted to the Lord undistractedly? This is what we're learning. Let me give you a good analogy to what the Apostle John was writing about in 1 John 5.3. Would you ever go up to a happy mother who's holding her infant and say, hey, make sure you don't forget to feed your baby some milk. That'd be offensive to her because she wants to nourish her child with milk. In other words, her love for her child is so great that we never really have to tell her to do what she already loves and desires to do. Right? Well, that's the picture that John is painting here. That's what it means to abide in the sphere of love. You do things because you want to do them. That's how you know you're maturing. See, when you're an adolescent believer, you have to get, you know, enforced humility. When you grow up, you realize, hey, I want to do this stuff. My life is better when I do this stuff. I bring glory to God when I do this stuff. It all works out. <laughs> Imagine that. And, and everybody's like 60 years old going, I spent 40 years blowing through, keep sticking my finger in a light socket. Some of you are like, 40? 60? That's what John's getting at. For the true love of God is this, that we do His commands, keep His ordinances, and are mindful of His precepts and teaching. And these orders of His are not irksome, burdensome, oppressive, or grievous. You realize the blessing in them. I mean, who doesn't want peace? What did we just learn? Obedience, peace. Is it burdensome for the infant's mother to say, 
uh, breastfeed her baby? Is that burden? Is that a burden for a, you know, a good mother who says, who loves her child, obviously? Is it burdensome for her to feed her child? No, not at all. To the contrary, it's something she wants to do as she abides in the sphere of love for her family. Sounds like a blessing to me. Doesn't sound like a burden at all. Sounds like it's a blessing to do this thing from the sphere of love. In fact, we might even say the real burden would come if and when she was ever obstructed from being able to express her love for her baby. That might be the real burden. Something stopping me from expressing my love. Something's trying to pull me out of the sphere of love. That's when you get aggravated. That's how another way you know you're maturing in the faith is that anything that pulls you out, something that's tempting you out of the sphere of love, you get agitated with. Wait a minute, stop the presses. I see what's going on here. Something's tempting me outside of the sphere of love where I'm protected by this peace even. And so now you start getting angry like I do. You know, I always talk about punching people in the throat. That's why. It's because I get angry. It's not them. It's what they stand for. It's their darkness. It's their, mis- it's their misguidedness. It's their confusion. Because I get angry at anything that takes you or me or any of us away from the sphere of love. Because that's the richness of living. Is in the sphere of love. Not outside. But the, all our enemies, all three of them, you count them, they're constantly trying to get us out. They don't want us to They don't want us keeping His commands. They want us out of the sphere where we're weakened. So in the case of the mother, the burden would be when she's obstructed from functioning in the sphere of love and expressing it towards her infant. This is what the Spirit's laid out before us this morning regarding the sphere of God's love that if we are saved, we have access to it, and we have been placed into the cradle of it. Therefore, anyone abiding in this sphere wants to do what love desires. Wants to do what love desires. In the case of children of God, it's to obey their Father in heaven. We want to obey. You have to ask yourself, you no longer want to obey your Father in heaven. Someone or something has plucked you out of the sphere. Someone's got you distracted. Something has pulled you out and away from where all the blessings actually are. For what? You know and I know. It's counterfeit blessings. Satan's like, hey, let me grab your attention. Hey, 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 I got a new idol. Hey, 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 I got a new piece of technology that's got a bunch of idols on it. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, you see her? She's batting her eyelashes at you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Whatever guys do, I don't know. All why? To take you out of that place. So in the case of the children of God, if you're in the sphere, you want to obey your Father in heaven. As I alluded to earlier, when we get to heaven, that's all 
we're ever going to do because our love will truly have been perfected by then. It's because the presence and power of sin in our lives that we don't enjoy this kind of peaceful living always in time. Because we have enemies that pluck us out of the sphere, pull us out of the sphere, if you would. Paul relates to that. So again, as sort of a balance statement, as encouragement, Romans 7, 19-20 in the Amplified reads, For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it. That is, it is not me that acts, but the sin, nature, which lives in me. And we're going to have that until the day we die. Again, up here on the board, on the sphere of love, anyone abiding in the sphere of love wants to do what love desires. In the case of children of God, it is to obey their Father in heaven. That's one of the hallmarks of being in the sphere, of being matured even, spending more time with Him in the sphere of love, not with the counterfeits, not with the distractions, but with Him. You want to obey because you actually get it. You understand that that's where all the blessings are. Does this mean we will do so perfectly? Nope, of course not. We aren't fully sanctified yet. However, true believers will habitually do certain things, as the Bible teaches very clearly. True believers will habitually do certain things. So, there's a whole practical side to these messages, as we've noted, starting with the cause-effect relationship between obedience and blessings. That's all I've been describing between obedience and peace. Is peace not a blessing? Of course it is. The more general case is a cause-effect relationship, as I taught you last week, between obedience and blessings. You name the blessing. Peace, joy, love, contentment, happiness, good rela- get one level out, good relationships, good friendships, good marriages, uh, good parenting, good chi- uh, children, good, you know, and just goes on and on. But at the core of that is obedience. Just like Jesus said. The one who loves me keeps my commands. Habitually. Present active voice. Now, rather than leaving it there, the Spirit asked us to ponder our lifestyles. And this is where everybody goes, oh, here we go. Because everybody, nobody has a problem admitting that they sin. Right? Anybody have a problem admitting that? If you do, you get real big problems. But nobody has problems admitting that they sin. And they like to encapsulate it and like put it in and bury it away. Oh, I sinned. <laughs> put a little bone up. Right? And it's out of, out of sight, out of mind. I sinned. It's gone. Poof. I confessed it. Whatever. I'm, I'm done. I buried it. It's done. And there's truth to that. But then they play this game. We'll get to it. Don't you worry. And was like, oh, I hate this part. Why? Because your whole life is... An indictment in some ways. So the Spirit, not Ed, don't blame the messenger, 
The Spirit asked us to ponder our lifestyles, not just our sins, which are accurately described as results of our lifestyles. It's not my fault. I, you know, I wasn't... Yeah, it is. You, who, who drove to that place of sin? Who walked right up to the doorstep of temptation? And who knew the directions there? <laughs> On that note, it's fair to say, up here on the board, post versus pre-sinning obedience. See, obedience isn't just post, it's also pre. By now, most of us are pretty good at obeying the, quote, recovery from sin commandments in the Bible. You know, like confess, ask forgiveness of others maybe, etc., etc. There are commands, or commandments in the Bible that deal with, what do I do after I've sinned? Kind of things like lust gave birth to sin. Now I get this thing that I've got to deal with. What do I do? Most of us are really good at that, right? And this is what I've got to do. I've got to agree with God. Yes, it was a sin. You know, probably have some prayer. If you, like I said, you might have hurt somebody else, you go ask for forgiveness. We're pretty good at that stuff. However, obeying commandments that keep us from sinning in the first place constitutes a much, much better lifestyle. Well, how did you get to where you keep performing that sin? Is there a better way so that you don't walk up to the doorstep of temptation? Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, you should stop that lifestyle? Yeah. Do you? Everybody's like this. Do you? Most of you know exactly when you're going to fail. Usually, well before you actually fail. It kind of wells up. You know, you're like, it's probably not a good idea. Probably not a good idea that I'm having any of these thoughts right now. But I'm just going to stay right here because I kind of, I like them. Right? Oh, that's a good thought. I like this thought. I haven't thought about it that way. Why are my eyes getting all bug-eyed? I don't know. Maybe I'm <laughs> having my own moment. Right? How do you end up in the same place every time? You choose it. You know what's going to happen when you put yourself right there. You know why? Because you're weak. And God's like, well, then don't walk up to the door of temptation. Stay over there. Right? There's a big old pit over here, and you're way over there. Why in the world would you walk towards the pit? I'm just going to look over. Then one of your enemies just goes like this. So there's this thing called lifestyle that the Spirit's been making us cling to, making us consider. It's an error to focus on post-sinning commandments only. We need to find the, right, the righteous lifestyle that protects us from sinning in the first place. We might bring in the notion of premeditation even. This is the root sustenance of an evil lifestyle. You want to keep it up? Keep premeditating. Keep making decisions that put you right there at the doorstep of temptation. And keep playing that stupid game that you play. It's not going to happen this time. 
Fast forward. Oh, next day. It's not going to happen this time. Fast forward. Oh, right? Stop playing games. That's all the Spirit's saying. So this is the root sustenance of an evil lifestyle, premeditation. Such a lifestyle would immediately halt if we quit planning and feeding it. If we know this and refuse to adjust, we are willfully sinning. James 4.17. On Thursday, I gave you a somewhat lengthy parable that I made. And by the way, just so you know, every parable that's worth its salt that I teach from this pulpit is being uh, recorded in a separate, which someday will be a book. So pray on that, that I have the energy um, to put that together. Because it's probably pretty lengthy. It must be hundreds of pages by now, right? Monica's like, yep. Because she's the one who takes them. I just go, can you take this? A little text. Hey, make sure that parable's in our book. Yes, Pastor. <laughs> Anyways, I gave you a somewhat lengthy parable that I made up about a machine operator on this topic. In brief, the machine operator spent hundreds of hours a year perfecting how to fix an older machine. While he thought he had earned a raise, his boss saw things differently. In the end, the machine operator realized that what he should have done is evaluate the big picture instead of focusing on simply getting better at fixing a broken, a broken machine. If he had, as his boss advised him, he would have abandoned the strategy, retired the older machine, and began using the newer one. The fact that he was really proficient at fixing the broken machine wasn't necessarily a bad thing. However, there's a better way. In other words, is it good that we know how to recover from something broken? A sin, in other words, in our life? Of course there is. But maybe, just maybe, instead of keep fixing, fixing something that's broken, maybe, just maybe, you change directions. So there's nothing to fix anymore. It wasn't his lack of skill in fixing or restoring the manufacturing line to production. It's that his focus had been wrong. Had he stepped back and considered the big picture, he would have instituted a better way, where broken machinery was much less common. So here's the whopper. I'm calling it the whopper. You can call it whatever you want. But this is the whopper that nobody wants to talk about. This is the one that nobody really wants to address in their lives up here on the board. We sometimes adopt lifestyles that inhibit our own sanctification. That inhibit our own sanctification. If we consistently sin in one particular area in our life, we need to step back, evaluate our lifestyle, and make appropriate adjustments. Again, we sometimes adopt lifestyles that inhibit our own sanctification. If we consistently sin in one particular area in our life, we need to step back, evaluate our lifestyle, and make appropriate adjustments. That's what the Spirit's saying. It's really good that you're able to be like the machine operator and fix something broken. But how about we stop wasting all our time? In my parable, you had 400 hours in one year. How about we stop wasting all our time fixing broken things. and Instead, let's take our time and make sure that something doesn't get broken in the first place. Let's make adjustments to the manufacturing line. Let's make adjustments to our lifestyle. 
The recurring principle in our messages as of late appear on the board. A lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. That's the game. Everybody plays. But so-and-so lives like this, and they, you know, it's good by... Fine, what's that got to do with you? Maybe they have capacity for something. Maybe they have an ability. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's not even what's supposed to be what you, you're supposed to be doing. A lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. However, if you are weak in a certain area and you architect a lifestyle that consistently places you in the crosshairs of temptation and then failure, then you are sinning because you know better and you know what happens every time. I mean, how many times you got to tell yourself? How many times you got to go through something? Twice? First time's a fluke. What's that old saying? Don't ask George Bush, right? First time, shame on me. Second time, shame on you. How's that go? Close enough. See, I'm as bad as George Bush. Maybe I should run for president. Then you are sinning. How many times does it take? Seriously, twice? First time, maybe really. You're like, I don't know what happened. I just, whatever. Second, third, fourth. Some of you are like, I'll try a hundred. I'm still doing it. You know. You know exactly what you're doing. That's what the Spirit's saying. There's no mystery here. You can play games with your parents or your friends. and oh, <laughs> I don't know what happened. I just have bad luck. No. No, you're making bad choices. You don't have bad luck. You're making bad choices. Your lifestyle is disoriented to the Lord. You're disobedient willfully. And then you have the audacity to expect deliverance. You have the audacity to expect peace and happiness and contentment when you're blatantly disobeying the Lord, when you know better and then you want the blessings. I don't see that in the Bible. Up here on the board, the truth is that we lose blessings when we choose to focus our attention and often our affections on someone or something other than our first love, Jesus Christ. That is a fact. There's no other way. I, I, listen, if, if, I, if it was different in the Bible, I would teach it. But that is the fact. That, that is the absolute truth. The culmination of 13 parts in this series, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. This is what it boils down to. You want blessings in your life? Devote yourself to the Lord. Honestly. You want blessings in your life? Devote yourself to the Lord. Obey His commandments. Abide in the sphere of His love. That's what the Bible tells us. Furthermore, as we learned, oh, a couple of weeks now, ago, our joy is conditional. Joy in time for a believer is conditioned upon obedience. I didn't, look, we've gone over the same scriptures together. This is not some, you know, uh, theorem or postulate, I mean, be using mathematical terms, some posit, if you would, from Pastor Ed. This is not my content. This is God's content. He said, your joy is conditioned upon your obedience. I'm not going to bless you out if you're disobedient. I'm just not. And he has every right to do that thing. John 15, 7, 11, 16, 24 up here on the board. 
16.24, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, so that, cause and effect and of you, your joy may be made full. Of course, we have to ask in accordance with his will. We see that elsewhere in Scripture as we've studied. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Our final point on Thursday was this up here on the board. Lifestyle versus sin. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. All I'm saying there is, listen, two people could have the same basic lifestyle. One could sin like crazy and one could never sin or hardly ever sin. Same lifestyle. What's the problem? Different people. That's the difference. You have weaknesses that I don't have. I have weaknesses that you don't have. We run the same course. I'm going to trip over that twig, and you're going to trip over that one. I'm going to fall in that pit, and you're going to fall in that pit. That's the difference. That's what it means to be an individual. So you can't say that a lifestyle itself is holy, specifically speaking. You can't say that. You have to say, is it holy for me? Is it righteous for me? That's the, right, that's the better question to be asking. That's the machinist who went from machine four to machine five. That's the one who steps back and says, wait a minute, what is the Spirit really saying? Oh, I have to evaluate my life. Is my lifestyle, do I have just a ton of momentum that always leads to the same pit? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, I don't know, it could, be, it could be as deep as everything you've worked for. Look what he did to yours truly. I worked so hard to be successful in industry, and I really was. And he said, gone. <laughs> gone. Now, what if I fought it? You wouldn't be getting these lessons from me. I mean, you'd figure out another way, but you know what I'm saying. What if I fought it? I wouldn't have the blessing of actually standing behind a pulpit and looking at your mugs. <laughs> what a blessing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though? Sometimes it's really, I don't want to use the word visceral, but you know, like uh, deep. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, I'll give up, yeah, I'll give up um, hot fudge Sundays on Tuesdays now. <laughs> oh, aren't you a trooper? Right? It could be a lot deeper than that. He could ask you like some pretty whopperish type things like, hey, listen, I need you not to do this whole thing anymore. I need you to stop doing this thing. The worst, the hottest. You see this group of people over here? Yeah. No more. They're bad news. They don't bring glory to me. They're not interested in bringing glory to me. They have no interest in me. Unless you're going to evangelize them, cut bait and let's go. Some of you like, some, for some of you it's not a group, it's one. It's one person. DJ's going, hmm, because he knows. It's usually romantic. Very often it's romantic garbage. If that person does not bring glory to God, cut them loose. Evangelize them, try, whatever, but cut them loose. That's a lifestyle issue. That's exactly what he's talking about.
Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. If you choose to live an evil lifestyle, it is your choice that stands out as the sin, not necessarily the lifestyle, for it may be fine for someone else. Similarly, and yeah, I guess I'll, I'll tap into this a little bit. I've got a couple of few minutes here. I wanna, I'm not going to finish my notes, but that's fine. On this note, on the individual aspect, taking all these things as individuals, which is what he wants us to do, we've turned the corner as a church. What about lifestyle? What about the way we do business? What about the manufacturing line we might call a ministry? So we as a church must also take into consideration what we stand for as a corporate body of believers. As we moved our attention in this series from individual to corporate considerations, we noted that the Lord refers to a whole church as a lampstand. A lampstand holds up a lamp. Last time I checked. No charge. That was wisdom. A lampstand holds up a lamp. Well, the lamp is the gospel. That is our function here at North Christian Church. And it is a corporate responsibility. Not just the pastors. Some of you come in and go, Oh, he's on fire. Yeah, go get him, man. Yeah, go Ed. Then you walk out and there's no lampstand in their life. There's no ministry of their own. They just come here and admire somebody else for doing it, for getting it done. That's cool. I'm good. Encourage me. I'm, I'm happy with that. You know? But this isn't about me. This isn't my ministry. This is God's ministry. I could be dead tomorrow. Some of you are like, yay. I could be dead tomorrow, right? <laughs> hey, the AV guy's like, yeah, because he's such a pain. It's not my responsibility. We are a collective. You're here for a reason this morning. God ordained it. And this message that's saying it's a corporate responsibility was also ordained. This is how we all enjoy the fullness of taking on our responsibilities as a congregation seriously. Up here on the board, North Christian Church as a lampstand in one sense, North Christian Church trains people how to eat, how to digest and be sustained by the Word of God. Believe it or not, believe it, uh, an immature believer comes to the Word and says, I, don't even, you know, I can't even find the book of Jude. It takes a while. You know, I mean, it's like a baby, right? You give a baby a spoon for the first time, they start... <laughs> they're not going in the porridge or whatever they eat. And eating, uh, <laughs> obviously, I grew up in the foothills of West Virginia, right? Or wherever they do porridge now, right? And we eat like this, too, by the way. <laughs> baby food, Gerber, right? Gerber. Now, baby, don't know what they're doing. The best they're going to do is probably throw it on the ground and look at you and go, I threw it. That's right, I threw it on the ground. And you put it back and you throw it on the ground again. They think it's a game. They, they, don't, they could care less about a spoon. Then when you're down there, they hit you in the head with the spoon. That's about as good as it gets. They don't know how to eat. That's what happens when we have to first train people that are saved. Can't even hold a spoon. You know what I mean? 
Paul says, you, know, you, just, you just have, you're just good enough to have milk, like a baby. Not meat. Meat requires a fork, knife, chewing ability. I mean, babies don't even have teeth yet. So first we train people how to eat, to digest, to be sustained by the Word of God. And then furthermore, teach what kind of doing, as we mature, actually sustains a believer over the long haul as it did our Lord. Up here on the board, isn't that what, one of the other giant principles that have come out of this series? Jesus said to them, my food is to do. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. This is what sustains my energy levels, if you would, to do. God, I'll, I'll eat something. I'm good. Do I look like I'm starving? No. I'm good. My food is to do. That's my sustenance, to do. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. At the tail end of one of our key passages that focuses us on corporate devotion, we noted one last thing. Go quickly to Acts 2, verse 4. Acts 2, verse 4. My food is to do, says the Lord. Not pontificate, not just show up and eat, but to do. Some of you could work off a few of those spiritual pounds just saying, Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind. What did I, what did I say? Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, I don't know. We're going to have to roll the tape back on that one. <laughs> Probably still thinking about the porridge thing. You're all confused. Acts 4.26, I'm just kidding. Oh, yes, yeah, I am. 2.46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This is what a corporate body functioning to the glory of God looks like. doesn't mean we're called to the same thing. This is the very early church. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being Saved up here on the board, and then I'll pick a spot to close because we're getting long in the tooth here. Adding to their number, this is the opposite of having a church's lampstand removed. That's where we got that word lampstand, Revelation 2 5. Say, I know your deeds, but you need to repent. And if you don't repent as a church, I'm going to remove the lampstand. You're no longer going to be a place where I posture up the gospel. In other words, you say, I'm going to destroy your ministry. Because God doesn't need any of us. It's a privilege to be North Christian Church. And a lot of people right here, listen to my voice right now, that should be here as well, need to hear this. It's a privilege for you to even show up and be called a member of this church. It's a privilege. Not even a right. It's a privilege to be here, to do God's work. I wonder, as a shepherd, how many of you really think that way. Or you just think, it's nice to have a church to go to. It's nice to have a pastor that's dedicated. It's nice to have spiritual gifts that are dedicated to feeding me in multiple ways. It's really nice. But do you consider it a privilege? 
to do the work of the Lord? To be a part of a corporate body that has a responsibility to the gospel? Do you consider that a privilege or are we just feeding you? Are you just gaining weight spiritually even? Do you know what I'm saying? That's a perspective. This is a privilege. It's it's your privilege to be a part of this thing. Not just a parasite. Don't be a parasite. Don't come here and say, what what can you do for me or else I'm going to go down the street. This is about the Lord's work. Using you. And some of you need to wake up. Just saying. Adding to their number anyways, this is the opposite of having a church's lampstand removed, which means wiped out, basically. Ministry squashed. This church in Acts 2 was fervently loving the Lord, and therefore its lampstand was established all the more. And I'll just say this in closing. If we're going to apply this to our own spiritual walks, we must understand that North Christian Church is here for a purpose. It's here for a purpose. The kingdom of darkness, as far as I'm concerned, almost squashed this place once. Even just this building I'm talking about. Before we moved in, they were down to like six people. And we almost lost the building. We being the body of Christ. We almost lost this beautiful building. It's a privilege to be here. An absolute privilege that you get to come here and understand what our goal is. Why this place even exists. It's not so we can feed you quiche and donuts. It's not so you can appreciate even the bald guy and his amazing speaking abilities. (laughs) That's how I throw it in, you know what I mean? There's none of that stuff. I mean, those are good. Makes life a little easier, but we have a purpose here. We are a lampstand for the gospel. Do you understand? We are a lampstand for the most precious cargo you will ever carry. Ever. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here this morning. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.